Good morning. Uh, my name is Andy, and I'm not just the prop guy here for Steve today, but he asked as I was coming up if I could bring this table. How's this, bro? It's good. <coughs> um, so good morning. Welcome. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Brookside Church, um, and I'm really uh, excited to be up here to sort of continue a little bit of the conversation that Rob started earlier about one of our friends here who's interested in exploring ways that God might change an entire country, which is a really big, big deal and a big calling. But a few years ago, I think about four and a half probably, um, a few of us from Brookside took a trip down to Haiti. Uh, Mark and Beth Stratman, who are still here, and then Sarah Martin and Craig Flack, who are no longer here at Brookside and Bowling Green with us, took a trip down um, <clears throat> to Port-au-Prince, Haiti for uh, sort of a vision trip to explore ways that we might support uh, missionary work going down there through the EFC Church, um, through Reach Global, which is the ministry down there. We had a chance to visit um, a house of the folks who were down there uh, um, from the United States. And uh, recently, uh, I think there were a few folks who were talking about um, maybe taking a trip again next summer. And then uh, one individual had said, maybe, maybe sooner than that even would be great. Um, and so I, I wanted to just to sort of make that, make that statement here in front of the, in front of the group uh, for everyone to be aware of that conversation that's happening. Um, but there's also two things that, that, that are going on right now with, uh, in the country, as well as with that particular uh, ministry that's down there. So if, if you've paid much attention to any of, the global, uh, any of the global news, international news that's going on, you might be aware that over the last few weeks there's been an incredible amount of unrest in Haiti. And so, in fact, I, I just got an email from Jen Blevins, who was here, I think in maybe October of last year, uh, was up on the stage and sharing a little bit about that ministry with us. But um, a, a lot of, uh, so much unrest that the United States issued a level four um, travel ban. Um, to not, to not make a trip down there because of uh, sort of the, the really dangerous place that it is at this time. I think they're starting to come out of that. Jen's email to me yesterday indicated that they're feeling hopeful, that they're able to travel within the country a little bit, but that there still are some pockets where things are really hard. Um, and so I would ask, one, that you would pray for, pray for Haiti. I know there's a lot of things going on in our country and across the world that, that you know, we would love to see Jesus come and, and, uh, and God do some incredible work there. But... Uh, we're personally connected with some people down here, or down there in Haiti, and so please pray for them. Um, about three or four weeks ago, though, I also got an email from Jen uh, that one of, the, one of the missionaries that's down there was in a really bad accident. Um, she was, by the grace of God, I think, really saved and protected. Um, but the van that they, one of the vans or vehicles that they use was damaged beyond repair. And so they have asked all of their church partners um, and mission, uh, mission partners and supporters for some financial help. And so um, Aaron Kessler set up on our online giving page uh, on the drop down an option that if you'd feel compelled or led, uh, or even, I mean, whether it's five, 10, $20, or even more than that, to contribute to that, we'll, we'll in a few weeks, we'll see where we are and we'll, we'll send some funds down there to help them. Um, getting a van to Haiti is not a, an inexpensive thing. It's about $60,000. And so they've got a high, you know, sort of a high, high bar that they've set for fundraising. But this is the way that they, they picked us up in the van that was, that's now totaled. They picked us up at the airport and they drove us two hours to their place outside of Port-au-Prince. 
Um, and so it's really critical to their, their missions work that they have a vehicle that's reliable and one that's, that's safe. So um, if, if you want to give online, that would be great. If you would give um, in the back in the giving box, and if you write a check, if you would just write Haiti on there, I think we'd be able to track it that way as well. Um, so thanks for, thanks for giving me a few minutes. And if, and if your heart is even stirred by the prospect of an international trip, um, or one in particular, maybe even to Haiti, um, find me or find one of the elders, find Aaron, find Mackenzie, um, and we would, we would want to get you plugged into those conversations that we're having there. So thanks for a few minutes of your time this morning. Kids, thank you for listening to that announcement. Halfway through, I realized I didn't dismiss you. You are welcome to go to class. Go ahead, kids. Uh, and Steve, we look forward to having you up here this morning. Um, I'll pray as the kids are walking away here too. Jesus, thanks uh, for this morning again, and thank you for um, your, your grace and the way that you take care of us, not just here in Olds Camp 101, but across the world. We, we trust you with um, the lives of those who are impacted by what's going on in Haiti and, a, and in all the other places where, uh, where you are desperately needed to bring to bring light and to bring love. Uh, so be with us this morning as we uh, celebrate uh, communion and, and live with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Andy. Welcome, everyone. As he said, I'm Steve Risky. I am the teaching pastor around here. My job is to see to it, not just that um, when I come on the stage, I say something hopefully interesting and useful, but that uh, as a message for our church that we can work together to say the things that we think will help you grow in your ability to understand God and to live with Jesus and to live your life well. And that's normally how our sermons work. Uh, and as I said last week, though, I I had been feeling for a while, like we, we came to baptism and we baptized and then shortly after communion, like these arch ceremonies, as you were, uh, uh, as it were, of the Christian faith, these things that we do and that, that have been done since the very beginning, what do they mean? And Because and when we come to them, we have just a few minutes to speak to them, not, not a whole sermon. And, and I felt like, well, it's time. That we take a moment, and, and so for this week, and, and last week, and then the week to come, wanting to look at these things that we, 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 for this sermon series called Sacred Rhythms. These things that we do, baptism, and, and, and worship, and, and, uh, and which one I'm missing? Oh, today. <laughs> Communion. What is this? What is this? Why have we done it since the beginning? And why did the ancient people talk about it? like it was nourishment to their souls. When uh, I happen to be an ancient history major, and so I like this stuff. I like reading Clement uh, of Alexandria, and I like reading Arrhenius, and these people who have names like Polycarp. Really? Polycarp. Polycarp is so awesome, by the way, that he would be my son's middle name, except, you know, Polycarp. Uh, anyway, <laughs> really? Uh, when they talked about communion, they talked about a, a privilege that to get to be there meant something overwhelming to them. And I knew it wasn't for me. I knew it was a ceremony we did. I knew that once a month we came and it was, a, and it's sacred to me in the sense that when we're here, we get this chance to remember what Jesus has done. But I knew we weren't talking about the same thing. And so I began to do my homework. What did this mean and why? And I realized communion's not just a memory that Jesus died. It is an overarching picture of everything you need to know about Christianity all in one tiny little picture, which makes Jesus a genius, as usual. But in order to do it, I'm going to need to give you a picture of the big story today. 
I'm going to need to walk from actually the Garden of Eden out toward Jesus. And, and it's going to move quick. And, and if I give you some Old Testament pictures you might not be familiar with, that's okay. Uh, it's, you know, I, I don't, I can't stop and tell everyone to the full or else we'd be here a while. And I think you'd rather me give you pictures that you may not have the whole picture of rather than we be here until 2.30. Uh, but you go to church in places like Haiti and those sorts of places, they don't care. We're staying until we're done. So I'm nice. I'm a good guy. All right. So jumping right in all the way at the beginning. Uh, I often say this and I, and I really want you to hear it. We start in the Garden of Eden. One of the reasons is because I think we've been taught it wrong a lot. Not that what was said was incorrect, but the, the, uh, the question that we asked and used it to answer might not have been the right one. And here's what I mean. Sometimes I think uh, the modern church reads the Genesis narrative as though Moses had just finished reading Darwin's Origin of Species. And he read it and was like, oh, no, ha, huh? I'm going to tell you. And, and he wrote the anti-evolution screed. He hadn't been reading Darwin, I promise. That was not what was happening. He was attempting to introduce you to a story of humanity, who we are, and how our relationship with God works. And everything written in the opening of Genesis is designed to explain the human problem. And we don't have time to cover all of it today, but if you will, you're probably aware that there's Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden, they eat the fruit, and we can argue about what fruit it is. Our friend Sam Schmidt argues pomegranate. I don't know. And they fall. And after the fall, God comes and speaks to them. He speaks to Eve. And, and in the Adam picture, when he speaks to Adam about explaining what is like, we have to understand that in the garden, God provided everything. Now, Adam works the garden, so it's not as though Adam is passively just sitting around and doing nothing, but rather, the Eden picture is designed to give us this feel like God made earth and us and him so that we together could have a blast building this place out us and God, us trusting in him, him working through us like a, like a father working with his children, seeing what they make and participating in what they make. It was going to be super exciting until the enemy convinced them that God is holding out on you. God does not have your best in mind. God has better, but it's behind his back. And he's kind of like, look, I'm going to hold you humans down kind of like this. And I'm going to keep you small and me big because apparently God has an inferiority or a, an insecurity problem. And, and as soon as the enemy convinces of it, we're going to do what it takes to find what God has. And we go eat the fruit and we fall. And in this passage, he says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. Thorns are part of the curse, by the way. For those of you who like the big pictures, there's a king who wears a crown of them. But that's not where we're going today. But I'd like to give those things to you for free as we go on by. And then continuing, he says to Adam, By the sweat of your faiths you shall eat bread. The beginning of the story Bread is not a good thing. As we come together and we have this today, this is supposed to represent something sacred. But bread is first mentioned to us as actually us having to make our own food. Bread is the original man-made food. You know how like when you go to the grocery store, they tell you to, like, to try to go around to the outside and not so much in the inside because the further you get into the aisles, the more you're eating processed food. Well, bread's the original processed food. It was us saying... If we're going to have to do it ourselves, we better make a plan. We better plant, we better grow, we better grain, we can make grain, we can make bread. And from the most ancient of times, pretty much everywhere you go on earth, 
bread is representative of food. They're the same thing because bread is the basic food. If you can add other things like maybe some meat, I mean, you know, like in the modern, like I feel like meat is like required for a meal. As my friend Nick Gillespie once said, if there's no meat in the meal, I kind of feel sad. But for them, bread. Bread. It represents what it is to be alive. Without bread, no life. And here it is. And let's, uh, let's put wine in the picture because a little later on, through mankind's failures, you, you know the flood narrative, probably Noah, the ark, the 40 days, the rain. And they're coming out of the ark. And, and it says that uh, after that whole thing, that Noah began to be a man of the soil. In other words, he is a farmer. He is participating of necessity because, you see, once we set sail from God, it was on us. We were responsible to make our own life. And so here's Noah, man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And you might know more about that story. I don't want to go detailed into it. I just want you to see that wine just got introduced to us. Bread is us saying to God, I'll do it to myself. And wine is us getting drunk on it. That is how the Bible introduces to you bread and wine. All right. So the story goes forward because eventually God chooses a people for himself. There's this man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, and he says to them, I'm going to make you a great nation. And, and they have Isaac, who has Jacob, who has the 12 sons, become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel begin to flourish, but then they end up in Egypt in slavery. Uh, if you know the Joseph story, this, this story goes on. And, and then maybe you've seen the prince of Egypt and you know that, that Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt. They call out to God saying, this is terrible. We hate this. Come rescue us. And God does. He rescues them. And maybe you're familiar with the Passover being part of the, of the Jewish feast where they leave Egypt and they take their flatbread with them, unleavened bread. And, and there's all these spiritual representations of what unleavened bread might mean, but there's also some very practical reasons. Flatbread's way better for traveling than puffy bread, Right? which works well for them until about a month and a half or so into the wilderness, it says this. They set out from Elim, you know, like you do, Elim. And, um, and all the congregation, all the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is not our English word sin. It's just an accident of how he, in Hebrew it's sin. Um, like literally, SI, uh, no, I'm not going to do it. It's not related to our word sin. Anyway, it's a place. And, and between Elim and, and, and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, they departed from Egypt. So here they are. They're coming out of Egypt, and it says this. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they said to him, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. It was better there when we, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. Notice the romancing well, only two months ago they were crying out about. Two months ago, slavery was horrible because, you know, slavery's horrible. And now we're out in the desert and we're running out of bread. Would that we sat where we had bread to the full for, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Have you ever been there? Because, first of all, I want to tell you this. I, I, being a Christian kid growing up in the church, I heard these stories all my life. And for the most part, I looked at them like they were a bunch of idiots. 
Like, okay, you just saw the Dead Sea, or the Red Sea, sorry, part, right? And, and you walked through a sea, like God's done miracles like crazy, the 10 plagues and, and the Passover. You saw miracles like humanity rarely, if ever, gets to see. And now you're a month later going, yeah, I'm not in on this God anymore because of bread. <laughs> but the more I realize what it's like to be them, the more I realize I am them. How often, how often do you and I go back to our slaveries, our addictions, our places where we say to God, yeah, I, I can't trust you for bread. I can't trust you for life. Uh, Paul, out him. Uh, Paul and I were talking recently about how uh, the comfort food is, is ice cream. You got that pint of ice cream. My current favorite is the brown butter ice cream with those little uh, rum butter chunks or something and a cuckoo, <laughs> right? And, and when the heart is sad, that line from Paul Blart where he's like, peanut butter fills in the cracks of the soul, you go looking for that, that food, that place, and maybe about three bites of ice cream would be satisfying, but the whole pint is what I'm going to consume because I'm looking to fill my soul. Whatever that sin is for you, whatever that place, that addiction, that, that, that thing that you keep having to go back to God and saying, Lord, I did it again. And he's like, yeah, I know, because uh, I'm God. And, and he's with us in it. But the fact is, when we're at the place where the addiction rears up, not after where we feel guilty, but before, we are these people. We're saying to God, my heart's hungry. I'm so needing it. I need something. And, and, and to trust God that he'll provide is so terrifying because I don't know how to walk further into this desert when I'm already hungry. And I start to look back at the slavery that the last time I in guilt and then the last time I in, in repentance said, God, please take this away. I want never to be there again. And, and I want to get rid of my slavery and it's back. Aren't we like them? I don't want us to lose that because I don't want us to look at these people like, what's the matter with them? There they are in the desert saying, God is not good because I don't have bread. Um, this one's a real quickie, but uh, 40 years later, at the end of the whole uh, wilderness experience, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, Moses is reminding him, and he says this. He says, uh, so God humbled you when he led you up. Uh, no, yep, uh, man, they jumped. Okay. Uh, and he humbled you and he led you up. Uh, let you hunger and fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but rather by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, some of you are going to be thinking ahead because someone else said that, right? But that's the next slide. Hold off. Here he is in the desert saying, this whole thing, all of this stuff that you've walked through was because humanity has had to decide, has had to come to some kind of question mark that says, either I can make my own bread or God is the life that my heart is looking for. And it is the core of the human problem. Every sin that is ever committed by every person in anywhere is them saying to God, you don't have life, I've got to make it myself and I don't even care who I hurt. Every time you've raged in anger at somebody you love, it's because your soul said, I don't have bread, and I, I, I got to get it. And, I'm, and we make it sound like it's so easy, only anger came out of the desperation of your soul, right? Very rarely do we choose anger. It chooses us. But it comes out of desperation. All of our hurts, all of our fears pile up to one question, does our God provide? And Moses says that God brought us through it so we could find it, which then brings us to the master. 
You see, Israel, or Adam and Eve in the garden failed over food. And Israel failed over food. And there are many who fail over food. And then here's Jesus. And this is the, we taught on this last year, but he's in the desert. He had been baptized and he's been in the desert for 40 days. It says that Jesus was led up to the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Same temptation as always. Your father doesn't want to provide. He doesn't have you. He doesn't love you. You are hungry. And it's time to answer the question, can God satisfy or are you going to make your own? This is funny because up until now, I imagine you thought of communion as a really good thing, like this is a blessed thing. And all the way through this, this has been our way of telling God you're wrong and we're right. So Jesus replies, what Moses taught the Israelites, it, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's beginning to happen. This is super important to understand about Jesus. He's not just the one who died on the cross and, and to save us from our sins. And even as we're theologically taught that he was without sin, but that he had to walk through these question marks of the soul that you and I do that cause us to stumble over and over and over. And then it says this, this is, um, this is in John 6. Here's what's happened. There's the famous Jesus fed the 5,000 bread. And because of that, they've come to him because they're remembering that their forefathers were fed by God in the desert with manna. And they're seeing the whole Moses story playing. And maybe Jesus is the new Moses. And they're very excited about it, as they should be. And they come to Jesus thinking, maybe this guy, maybe this is God's plan, is going to keep just, you know, feeding us loaves of bread. And this is going to be amazing. We're going to do a new Israel. And... Uh, and they, and they say, well, how are you going to prove to us that you're really the new Moses? And, and, and Jesus responds, okay, first of all, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. All right. It was, it was God. Moses was there. Moses was part of God's instrument, but he wasn't walking around handing out bread. God was. It's very important to Jesus that Moses not uh, get credit for that. But my father gives you true bread from heaven. The reason he wants you to understand that is because he wants you to understand that he is God's new provision. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They're like, all right, well, give us this always. So there's a little bit of exposition uh, that takes place. And, and so in the next passage, Jesus says to them, and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, could you imagine standing there that day? You're, you're a very faithful Jewish person. You've learned all your stories. You understand. You've done Passover a lot of times with a lot of flatbread. You've learned all about your forefathers in the wilderness, how they failed. And you're thinking, I really want to be on God's side. And, and this guy says he's the new Moses and he does some miracles. There's reason to believe in him. And so I come and say, how do I do it? How do I be God's people? And he says, yeah, just take a bite out of me. I'll be the bread of life. Just go ahead. And, and, uh, and they're confused as well they should be as a matter of fact if you've ever read John 6 there's a good chance you were just as confused as they were and Jesus doubles down on it he says this truly truly I say to you whoever believes has eternal life I am the bread of life we could uh, flip that slide up I am the bread of life your fathers ate the man in the wilderness they died physical bread is not what your soul has been dying for this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And continuing, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. And here's the secret to understanding it because in John 6, John does not explain it. Only he gives you this word abide. So I italicized and underlined it for you there. They're going, something's going to happen that causes them to do some abiding. Something about, and notice he said, whoever believes, something about belief and abiding is going to change your life and give you the satisfaction that your soul is longing for. That feeling when you're standing at the freezer and the pint of ice cream is calling you or the peanut butter or whatever it is, the Reese's, or, or whatever other addiction you brought in. Maybe your anger. Maybe you've been trying out sexual immorality as your way to try to feed your soul. Whatever it is that when your soul cries out, but you don't understand, God, I'm hungry and I need it. You're like every one of us who's been in that wilderness. And Jesus says, if you abide in me, you're going to have the life. You're the soul life that you've been looking for. So he says, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So, so remember, he'd answered the question about bread. He had said the way he gets life as one of us humans is his relationship with the Father. And, and he's not willing to cash in that relationship with the Father because it's way better than him, even than to eat when he's super hungry. And he says, just the same as I do that. So whoever has that relationship with me, there's something about our relationship with Christ which is supposed to answer the question, how can I satisfy my hunger? And as Americans, we don't deal with physical hunger all that much. So there's a, there's a funniness to bread because for most of uh, humanity, getting bread was a big deal. In my study for this, I read that uh, as late as a century ago, 90% of bread was baked in the home. Store bread was just not a thing. It was what you did, okay? And, and of course, now we're the other way around. It's less than 10% of bread is made in anybody's home now. I would imagine way less than 10%. Although Brad Yaniga, killer bread baker, if you can find him, get his bread, it's good stuff. But that's way aside here. Okay, uh, <laughs> he just happens to be the person I know who makes bread. <laughs> All right. Here we are, we're saying to Jesus, I need to decide, do you have it or do I? And Jesus is saying, yep, it's me. But catch that word abide, because we're going to come back to it. Now we need to come to the Last Supper itself, all right? So this is the Jewish Passover now. Jesus was crucified as part of the Jewish Passover. And he's sitting with his disciples, disciples having the Passover meal where they're remembering that God made them a people and that God led them out into the wilderness. And, 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 there's, and as part of that meal, there's a cup of wine which starts it. And there's a prayer which you say over it called the kibbutz, which means sanctification. And by the way, it's not just that meal. Uh, when in Orthodox Jewish world, anytime you come to sort of a sacred day, so it could start the Sabbath. So their Sabbath begins at Friday night, sundown. Bring out the wine. You, you pray the sanctifying prayer that sort of sets it apart and says, we've now crossed into the sacred time. And, and of course, when you come to a feast like Passover or whatever, there's the wine. This way of starting, this way of celebrating, God, see, Judaism was designed to help them take the bread and wine, which had been our way of saying to God, I'll take care of it myself. And the whole point of it was to try to say, God, you are my bread, you are my wine. And at the very meal that celebrates all of that at once, Jesus says to his disciples, he says he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup of wine uh, it's just assumed. <laughs> um, 
And when he had given them, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant. This word covenant is super important here. So we have bread, which is our way of being alive. It is, it's the idea of food itself. It's the idea, uh, it's the symbol of how do I become one who is not dead? And, and think about it, because you, you want to become not physically dead, and so you eat food, like you do. But you also want to become not emotionally dead, and think of all the foods you try to deal with your emotional not-deadness. Think of how often maybe you've binged on Netflix to try to get rid of the deadness, or how often maybe you've used anger to try to restore life, or how often you've, you see what we're doing here. And every time we do that, we say to God, I've got this. I don't need you. It's really hard to keep freezing with food in your mouth, but I wanted you to see it. And Jesus takes all of that and he changes it to something else and says, no, I want you to understand in your physical life, in your emotional life, in your spiritual life, in all of it, they're all the same thing. They all have to answer one question. Can my father provide or am I going to do it myself? And every covenant God ever made was to prepare us for that including the great covenant that he had made with the people of Israel when they came out of the desert. And, and covenants would have a sacrifice associated with them. Every covenant, so David's, you know, or uh, uh, Abraham's covenant where God has him and the animals and, and Moses' covenant and all the sacrifice. And Jesus says, there's not going to be an animal sacrifice this time because this is the covenant that God wanted to make with humanity. That he would lay down his son and that his son would bear our sin. And all of it would come on him. And, and as we join him in death, remember last week with baptism, as we join him in his death and we rise with him, that we are given his life. It's not just about who goes to heaven or whatever. It's not just saying that if you trust in Jesus when you die, you can, he's saying there's something about your today that can change you in him and make you the sort that actually has life. He wants to make a covenant about it, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, can continue with the passage. And I tell you that I will not drink again of the fruit of the wine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's coming a day where there is going to be a the party, that this is not just a remembrance of what he did, it's a celebration of what is to come. Because remember in Eden, all the way back at the beginning, where God and people were together and, and, we, and, we, and our relationship was such that we shared it and we trusted him in the new kingdom, that's coming and we are going to drink it up. Maybe not to drunkenness. I don't know. Can you not get drunk and have, I'm not aware. I've never been. So we'll continue. Because here's what I want you to see. The Apostle John also has a Last Supper narrative. As a matter of fact, where in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they only give you about a, a one chapter describing what happened that night. John gives you five. John thinks that this incident was so important that he wants to really fill it in. And he gives you, you know, uh, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. No way, Lord, that's in all of them. And, and Judas, you know, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas bails out. And that's in all of them. And, and then right at the spot where you would expect John to begin to tell you about that this is my body broken for you that you, you saw in, uh, in the last slide, or in, sorry, in this slide, John takes a detour. He doesn't mention it at all. Not in one spot does John tell about Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you. Instead, he tells you about the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
And in that passage where he says, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send the comforter and he's going to abide in you. He then says to us, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. That's why when we don't abide in God, we become dead. And when we become dead, we go searching for life. And then we try all our sin. We, we, you've been there. I've been there. We know what this is like. And he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you could do nothing. He's trying to describe an experience offered to you where three things are true. Through his death and resurrection, we're forgiven, we're made his, we are, set to, we are set to life. And then we're given his Holy Spirit who gives us power to begin to practice be abiding in him. So today, when I got here, this, this little TV that I'm looking at right here that gives me the slides, uh, it was broken. Super annoying. But quite often, I'm just preaching from one passage. I just crack open a Bible. I could read from it, you know. Oh, no, not today. Today's the day where all of the slides are like passage, 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 passage. I'd be like trying to flip it. So if this is broken, I have to keep doing this and reading the slides like that, which is super awful. And all of it, and, and I begin to feel frustrated because of all days, this is the day and my stupid TV's broken and, and it looks like someone stepped on it and I want to get mad at them. I want all these things. And just in this moment, I have an opportunity. Where's my life going to come from? And, and I feel it. And I feel this like divergent of ways. And sometimes I'd be angry. I don't know why, I just... Today's, today's a day where I just had one thought that crept through my mind first, and that is, it's his sermon. And as soon as I begin to think that, it's his. He can handle it. He can take care of it. My heart begins to call me. He's got it. Whatever it's going to be, it's going to be. And then we get busy, and, and you see what happens is I begin to place my trust on him, and through his spirit, he begins to produce life in me, and I didn't even sweat it. Went to Walmart and bought a new one. didn't have to sweat it the way it appeared sometimes I've got it sometimes I don't I'm like you <laughs> I'm not up here because I'm super at it I'm up here because I've learned a lot about it and then we can share together what it's really like <laughs> that's the deal he says instead of here's my body broken for you he says do this in remember me he says abide they're the same thing so check this out let's start to sum this up so what does it mean all right, first of all, it means remembrance. Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of me, that when we take communion, when you come today, as you start to file in the aisles, if you're a follower of Jesus, you see, because the idea is, well, if you, by the way, consider for the moment, the person who's not a follower of Jesus, who comes? They're still saying, this bread is actually me. <laughs> this bread which is set aside, I'm gonna take it for me. It's literally like Eden again. It says, I'll, I'll take care of it myself. I got it still. That's why we ask if you're not a follower of Jesus to not to. In its own way, it's actually repeating the curse. But as a follower of Jesus, you have to decide, why am I coming? What is this about? All right? And the first thing we always say is remembering that he died and rose again for us. There is one who made the way for us. And if that is all you ever do at communion, it will probably always remain a sacred experience for you. But I want you to see how much more there is. So continuing through all that we talked about today, it is God, our provider. We're remembering that he has provided a way. If you've been a part of Brookside over the last year, we've been talking about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And just as Jesus trusted his father, we do. Check this out. Communion is a representation of that. 
I have to ask where my bread of life is going to come from. It is either I'll take care of it with my sin and myself or my God has it. Trust is pictured here. When you come, you're taking up that bread and dipping in the wine and saying, Jesus, through your blood and through your life, you provide for me. But more, he also is saying, God in us. Remember, because the communion is something you eat. You put it inside you. And remember, like, the early Christians are always like, it's like God living in me because the Holy Spirit is. As Christians, we believe God placed his spirit in us. He indwells us. He has made us temples. He has made us his place of being. And through that, he wants to reach out to the world. Therefore, we are celebrating not just that he died and rose again, but that he gave his spirit to place in us. There it is right in this picture. And instead of us saying to God, I got it myself, we're saying, this is a symbol of me saying, you've got me. And then finally, being God's people together. You see, it's not just a thing you do yourself. It's never been a thing that Christians did themselves. It is always a thing that we did together because we are the temple together. It is not temple, 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 because each of you have the Holy Spirit. We are his place of being. We are his body. We are his people. We are his bride. They're all those things. And so we do it together. It's a celebration of togetherness. This is why in the, uh, I didn't put this in there because of time, but in Corinthians, where Paul's like, you people are showing up, and one of you eats your own communion and actually gets full and drunk, and another poor person doesn't even have any. This is the anti-gospel, and he's really furious about it. Could you imagine that if each of you had to bring your own communion and you didn't have any, and you're looking over and some person's like, I can't even, right? But this is happening. And Paul's furious about it because it is a picture of us together. And as you come today, I want to invite you, we put these three up there. There they are all together. As you come today and as we take communion, and there's bread and there's grape juice, as it were. And, and you have this opportunity to symbolically say to God, I'm yours. You're my provider. I'm yours. I am one of these. Maybe you've been feeling separated from the body and, and you're asking God, how do I be a part of the body? And maybe you really need to, like, like me today, say, God, you've got me. And, and, and whatever place that I've been in my own provision, I trust you. Or maybe it really is that spot where you're like, I just cannot be more thankful that you died for me. And I wanted to pull them all together so that you could see that right here, what began as our way of saying to God, I've got this, I don't need you, has become our way of saying, God, you've got me and I need you. So we want to, uh, you to come and, and, and Rob's going to leave worship and come down the aisles. And again, if you're a follower of Jesus, please come. And we're so thankful to do this with you. This week, there's going to be times where people are going to come at you. There's going to be times you're falsely accused. There's going to be times where someone took credit for your work. There's going to be times where maybe your spouse is going to look at you coldly when you're looking for warmth or harshly when you were looking for mercy. There's going to be times where your soul finds emptiness and is going to go looking for life. There are going to be the places where you need it and where death yawns out like a chasm in front of you and you feel your soul falling into it. I want to invite you this week in those moments to grab a little piece of chopped up white bread in your heart and remember there is one who's got you. Who's got you. And if in that moment you can take a bite of Jesus, his words, not mine, 
If you can find the life that he gave you, you will be able to join the Christians who from the beginning said, death, where is your sting? Grave, where's your victory? You lose because my father has me. That's what I wanted you to catch today and I'm hoping you're able to come. Away going, yeah, I've got him. He's got me. My father does not leave me hungry. And in doing so, you'll really be not just a Christian, but really Christian. Have a great week. We've got a fun one this week, by the way. If you're here and you're new and, and uh, we redid the comment table and Amy made welcome bags complete with Brookside chocolates. See what you did there? Yeah? Oh, yeah. So we would love you to go to the comment uh, just outside the doors there and we'd love to meet you. We're so thankful to be a part of you. Have a fantastic week. See you next time.